Thanks to Audible for supporting Rule Breaker Investing. For a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial, go to audible.com slash fool or text fool. That's right, F-O-O-L to 500-500. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. And welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Happy New Year. It's 2018. And judging by a single market's day of trading, it is indeed a very happy New Year. But then again, we don't really judge too much by one day's market trading. But I am taping this on Tuesday, January 2nd, the first day the stock market's open. And it has been a rocking first day. In fact, most of the Motley Fool portfolios that I follow, as well as my own, I hope yours, all-time highs as of trading today. So, very exciting way. All flags flying here to start 2018. Well, I had a nice, relaxing break. I spent a little bit of it after Christmas and into New Year's in Asheville, North Carolina, at the Inn at the Biltmore on the grounds of the Biltmore. It was a beautiful time to see America's so-called largest home, uh, the Vanderbilt family, George Vanderbilt, the visionary behind building this um, gorgeous French-style chateau um, on thousands of acres. And you really feel, for those of you who've been to Biltmore, or maybe even live near Biltmore, you really feel as if you're removed from the world at large as you sit and enjoy the grounds and the various uh, enticements that they have there at the Biltmore estate. So that was a fun way to kick in the new year. And at some point, I remember clicking into Twitter and seeing a point made by, I think it was NPR's Planet Money. It was a little challenge or some sort of a story. I didn't actually take in the story because I was, after all, on vacation. But I loved the point of the story, which I'll, I will convey to you now. I'm sure some of you have already seen this. But it imagined, it asked rhetorically, what if instead of newspapers being printed every day or online news being updated every minute, what if you only read a newspaper that came out once every 50 years? What if we just printed the 50-year newspaper today, what would be on the front page? What would be your headlines? I think one of the general points that I take away from the exercise, and we had some fun family conversations around what you would put on your front page of this newspaper, but I think one of the general points made is that they would generally be positive stories. Really remarkable things jump out to me. Things like the Cold War ending. That was certainly a big one. That would be on my front page. Or probably my top headline would be something like, The Internet Dawns. And think about all that it has brought to humankind low these few decades. So, most of these would be really positive stories. And I think the point is that we tend in our daily papers to come up with lurid headlines about things that might be wrong or mysterious, hidden bad things. But when you step away and only read a newspaper every month or every year or just publish once every 50 years, it kind of changes your perspective. And I think in a really Good way. So there's the 50 year newspaper idea for you. Kick around with family over supper. All right. Well, speaking of kicking things around with other people, this episode of Rule Breaker Investing is the continuation, the third in my occasional series that I like to call Campfire Stories. So what we're kicking off 2018 with is Campfire Stories, Volume 3. Now, for those of you who've been with me and with Rule Breaker Investing from the beginning, or who've gone back and binge listened to past episodes you may have missed, you're already aware that we initiated Campfire Stories Volume 1 on June 1st of 2016. I was able to tell my story of what happened when the CNBC hostess asked me, Did I still like cloud stocks? 
after the previous day's trading. Could I still like them after that one bad day of trading they'd had the day before? That was a fun story to remember. Or my five monkeys story, my classic five monkeys story, which I hope I conveyed well on June 1st, 2016. That's still above the fold, iTunes and Spotify. So if you'd like to go back and reminisce with the first volume of Campfire Stories, it's right there. Or the second, which came out just about a year ago, February 1st, 2017. That was very autobiographical and more personal. We called it the early days, but it was an opportunity for me to talk about my first stock picking contest. You know, one of those that you have in your school and you're picking stocks against your classmates. Or I got to talk about some lessons I'd learned as the Minnesota Twins bat boy and some others. So if you enjoy some more autobiographical stuff from me, you'll enjoy that from February 1, 2017. I should mention, if you find yourself inspired to dig deeper into some of my early days, I also did a portrait of the investor as a young man talking about my early investments, my early investment mentality in my late teens, and how it translated into some winners and some losers in my first few years. So, if you have a young person in your life that you think might enjoy that, Portrait of the Investor as a Young Man was September 21, 2016. Still, yes, above the fold of the last 100. So, that's looking backwards. But now let's look forward to this episode where Campfire Stories Volume 3, as I mentioned last week, is going to start to take on a new approach. Because I think the real beauty of a campfire is it's kind of a big fire. Like I'm picturing more of a bonfire, and I'm seeing lots of people around it. So last year when I did my autobiographical stuff, that was that that's just campfire of one. I love the community storytelling members and community members coming and telling their stories, and that's how we're going to kick off with Volume 3 today. I have several fools that I'm going to be bringing around into our campfire. I've talked with my producer, Rick Engdahl. Rick and I have committed to bringing some sound effects. You may have noticed in our first two campfire stories, there were no sounds of fire, but there might be a little bit more ambient stuff going on as we up our production values here to start 2018. So, I'm thinking of those primeval Fires where you're gathering with your fellow cavemen and cavewomen and we're telling stories together. So I'm inviting in community members to tell stories that have shaped them as investors and people. And I'm really excited to be bringing on some of the voices that I have for you on this week's show. All right, to our first campfire story this week. We're calling in. One of my fellow fools, a guy that I've gotten to know online, he's dropped me a few notes over the course of time, dropped me a note with a short story a few years ago, and I loved it. And I made a mark at the time, I made a notation, I said, I have to have Landy Cook on this podcast to tell this story. So, without further ado, Landy, welcome. Well, thank you, David. appreciate the opportunity to be on the show. And Landy, where are you calling in from? I'm uh, calling from the eastern shore of Maryland. Do you want to mention what your calling is, your professional calling on the Eastern Shore of Maryland? Sure. I'm a pediatrician in a, uh, the town of Easton. Now, before we get to your story, Lenny, roughly how long have you been a an investor? Uh, I would consider myself uh, having started investing about 15 years ago. That's tremendous. What was the spark that you that got you started investing? For me, it was the fear of suddenly being responsible for another human being when my first <laughs> son was born. Wow. A very natural fear. One of those fears, though, that drives us to do good things. Um, there are many fears that do otherwise. Landy, what is the title? How, how will you title your story? 
I'd call it, and I don't even like cheesecake. <laughs> okay. So, and I don't even like cheesecake. Let's start it with Once Upon a Time and take it over from there. So, uh, about 15 years ago, my eldest son was born. And uh, as I mentioned, I suddenly felt this tremendous responsibility in providing for him. Uh, and of course, I wasn't sleeping much having a new baby in the house. And my mind started to turn towards, uh, you know, our family's financial security. Um, I was uh, fortunate to have a small amount of savings through a financial advisor that my parents had used. Um, but I really didn't know the first thing about investing. I uh, started to become more interested in investing as I felt the, the weight of having to provide for my family. Um, and I do recall watching a couple of uh, peculiar brothers on a TV show. I think it was the Today <laughs> Show, but it was a morning program, and they're gesture caps, and we're talking about finances in a way that I'd never seen before. They actually made it look kind of entertaining and fun, and it was not anything that I had really spent any time devoted to. Uh, and around that time, but it may have been a little before, a little bit after, I received on my 30th birthday a very nicely packaged cheesecake. And I had no idea who sent it, and I read the card. It was a nice <laughs> card. It was written by my financial advisor. So, you know, and I don't even like cheesecake, but it was a nice gesture. But as I started to think more and more about it and why someone would go through the hassle of sending a cheesecake halfway across the country, it, it dawned on, well, I'm the one paying for this. And if I'm going to pay for it, then I should know, you know, where the money's coming from and, and learn more about uh, what I'm paying my advisor, because I really had no idea. And you don't even like cheesecake, as you said. And I don't even like cheesecake. So if you're going to buy yourself a birthday present, at least pick something that you like. <laughs> and so it started with a cheesecake. And I'm thinking that that was basically a symbol or a token of your recognition, as you said, Lanny, that you were paying for the cheesecake. Yeah. And it, and, uh, you know, it led to a, uh, an email conversation with the advisor, and uh, it started getting me uh, asking questions. Well, what are, what am I paying you, and what am I getting for that uh, price? And I learned about 12B1 fees and uh, sales loads, and uh, realized there's no free lunch. You know, and he has to make a living too, but there was no transparency there, and uh, it led to some uncomfortable back and forth. And I think the end result from the, the advisor's standpoint was, well, if you manage your money yourself, it's like he tried to he used an analogy with uh, being a doctor and patient. It's like you're, you're acting as an untrained uh, doctor and you're the patient. Ah, uh, yes. And, uh, when he framed it that way, I thought, well, no one cares more about my finances than I do. And it's not rocket science. I think it can be learned. And so that sort of motivated me to take uh, control of my finances. So, Landy, this is a while ago, because I'm, I'm remembering back to when Tom and I were on the Today Show with our gesture caps on, and I'm thinking that was somewhere around um, 10, 12, 14 years ago? I want to say 
around 2001, All 2002, right. maybe. Clearly, the Today Show needs to have us back so we can reach somebody else who just got a cheesecake in the mail from their broker. So, how long? What was the duration between the reception of the cheesecake for your 30th birthday and your switching financial planners from that person to yourself? It is probably a matter of weeks. It's hard because the time all kind of blends together. Yes. But uh, it was a good confluence of events that kind of led to me. Doing it, and I don't remember it being easy to do so. I think inertia is a very strong force. You and bet. I'm sure, other other listeners can relate to that. And I bet some people are nodding their head right now, saying, "Maybe I'm inspired to make a change." Sometimes you don't get the cheesecake, but you can still get the catalyst. Maybe through this podcast to make some changes here at the start of 2018 for you, whoever you are, with your own financial relationships. You know, there was a book. I've not read this book. But I've always loved the title of it, and it's an investment classic. It's called Where Are the Customers' Yachts by Fred Schwed. Have you ever read that one, Landy? I've heard about it. I think it's often quoted, but I've not read it myself. <laughs> That's right. And it's kind of the same thing, except instead of a cheesecake, it's a yacht and looking at who has the yachts. And it's typically, at least back then, this is decades ago, although I think a lot of people would say it's still contemporaneously true. Um, it would tend to be the financial professionals who have the yachts, the hedge fund managers, not so much their clients. So it's a good reminder to us all. Lenny, is there is there any second lesson there or thought that you have? Um, I think the obvious message beyond that every financial professional is now thinking twice about sending cheesecake or gifts to anybody. But I think the obvious lesson is make sure you know what you're paying for your financial management. You mentioned. 12B1 fees, an example of kind of a hidden fee that people don't realize they're paying to a mutual fund or to somebody selling a mutual fund for the purpose of them selling the mutual fund. So that seems to be instructive. Any other thoughts now that you've transitioned your life to a more independent phase where you're kind of in control? I, the only, I guess, the, the further thought I would add is don't be afraid to move incrementally. I think when I think back, I, I transferred those funds to my own you know brokerage account, but I didn't make any immediate changes. I was a little bit nervous and scared I would do the wrong thing, and I you know sold these funds with their lousy 12b1 fees all gradually. I didn't make a decision one day and, and do it all at once. I, I did it over time, and it was less uh, scary that way. I love so, it. So uh, I think that's a, a, a something that I'm glad that I did, and it was hard to do, and I, I think you don't have to do it all in one day. That is a great reminder, and it's it's a truly capital F, very foolish lesson. Um, I, I don't think I can let you go, Landy, without, since there are a lot of people listening right now who themselves have kids, can you just give us, kind of a from a pediatrician, a quick bit of advice, or what do you hear too much of, or what can we do better as parents? What do you see every day that you want to help change the world through this podcast? Wow, that's a tough one to, to take on. <laughs> I, I see, I, just be there for them. I, you know, I think a lot of times we get wrapped up in our own lives, and, and the time moves so quickly, and you blink, and they're growing up, and then they reach an age where they don't want to be around you quite as much, or they want to, you know, have their own adventures, and um, it's you know every little bit counts. Even if you're driving in the car to a, a practice or a, a school, you know that's quality time where you have a captive audience, and we need to take advantage of that as parents. Love it. 
Landy Cook, thank you very much for your story and for joining us on Rule Breaker Investing. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. All right, campfire story number two. And now I'd like to welcome to the campfire Brian Feroldi. Brian, welcome. Thanks, David. Great to be here. Brian, where are you calling in from? I am a proud resident of Rhode Island. Excellent. And um, you and I have gotten to know each other some over the years, but others may not know you as well. Brian, for roughly how many years have you been, in a foolish sense, capital I, investing? Uh, the foolish way, about a decade. But I've been buying and selling stocks for about 15 years. And perhaps we'll be getting into some of those early years with the story. We'll find out. And Brian, what is your affiliation with The Motley Fool? I am one of the writers for Fool.com, and I uh, specifically focus on healthcare and technology. Excellent. Brian, are you ready with this next story? I sure am. What is the title of this story? Beginning Investing the Wrong Way. Excellent. Brian, start us off, of course, with the phrase, once upon a time. I didn't know anything when I got started, so um, my dad was a little bit of an investor, and he got uh, us kids at least a little bit interested because he was buying and selling um, stocks. And one stock in particular, he told us, if this stock gets to $25 a share, you will all get a a dirt bike. Wow. Brian, roughly how old are you when he's saying this to you? Uh, I'm going to guess about 13 years old. So prime dirt bike age. And I think the stock was trading for around $20 a share. So getting to 25 was not outside of uh, the realm of possibility. But that was the first time I I ever cared about an individual stock going up or down, and we used to check that thing every single day. And uh, of course, to my knowledge, it never actually got to $25 per share. Um, but that, that sparked an interest in that you could make money from the stock market in some way. So when I, my, when I graduated college, I, uh, I, I did have a tiny little bit of money to invest, and I did put it into uh, I opened a brokerage account. It was just a, a few hundred dollars here or there. But I I did talk with my dad briefly about uh, investing, and I'm pretty sure at the time I thought he was a genius, but I'm pretty sure that he was getting his advice from the guys from Wolf of Wall Street, um, who who would just basically his broker would would give him stocks that were pen, you know traded for a few pennies a share. And they had some really simple story like this company's going to cure cancer or or something like that. So he would tell me about those, and, and I would I would uh, unfortunately I, I would buy those. And I was highly attracted to anything that was under say three dollars a share, just because I was only playing with a few hundred dollars. And I figured I wanted to own you know get, to make money, you have to own at least a hundred shares or something. That is where so many people's mentality starts, and it's understandable, isn't it? Because when we only have a few hundred bucks, seems like we wouldn't want to buy a share of, I don't know, a stock at 200. We'd want to buy 200 shares of a stock at one because it feels like we're actually going to make money that way, doesn't it? Absolutely, it does. Plus, if a stock only has a dollar, it only has to go to two dollars a share for me to double my money versus four hundred dollars a share for that two hundred dollar stock. Exactly, the logic Brian. I told myself at the time. Right, and we, we tend to forget to ask ourselves questions like, why is that stock only at one dollar in the first place, and how did it get there? <laughs> right, and and that was the that was the entire uh, research that I did. I, I I knew a ticker 
and I knew that the stock traded for under $3 a share, and somebody else liked it. And I figured that was good enough for me. So that's, that's exactly what I was, uh, quote-unquote, investing in in the first, day year or so uh, of uh, how I started off investing. And uh, as you can probably guess, that blew up spectacularly in my face. I'm pretty sure that everything I bought went down, 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 and, and stayed down. That's got to be pretty disconcerting, but maybe even more so for your dad, because I'm presuming that he was staking a little bit more than you were, and he felt like he was influencing you. Is that the case? Uh, I, I'm sure he felt a little bit, a little bad too. Um, yeah, and, and he de- was definitely playing with more dollars than than, than I was. Um, so, but regardless, I the moral of that story was I learned very quickly that. When stocks trade for under five dollars a share, there's a reason, and you you can't just buy things because you can't let a low share price attract you in. There's there's way more to investing than that. Brian, do you remember any of the particular company names or stories, or did any of them pan out for you? Absolutely, I do. Um, I I I think that one of the companies was called Stem Cells Incorporated, and the and the ticker stimmer was S T E M. And if you remember in the, in the mid '90s. Stem cells were like a real big thing, and this company had stem cell right in its name. So how could I lose, right? I do understand that mentality, especially when we're new. When you see the ticker symbol looking like the convincing real word or term associated with its technology, when they've got the ticker symbol STEM, that is further proof positive for those who are looking for that, isn't it? Absolutely, it is. And another one was uh, Pure Biosciences, who were using silver or something like that to as, as a new type of antibiotic, um, and they had a couple of press releases that were very convincing that it was like going to revolutionize healthcare. So and anything with a quick story and a good ticker, under $5 a share, I was in. So Brian, is that the end of this story? Is it sort of a sad ending to this particular story, or is there a turn in the story that we have yet to face? Well. Of course, it was sad that I that I got swindled and lost so much money so early. But that I, I wouldn't trade that experience for anything because there's nothing like actually losing money to to really make you think hard. And and ever since ever since that experience, I have been extremely skeptical of companies that have traded below say ten dollars a share. And and I that that experience really pushed me hard to look at companies with actual profits and earnings and and motivated me to actually learn about the stock market. So So that is an excellent, I would say maybe a, a hidden or subtle second lesson to your story is that sometimes losing money consistently can really motivate you to ask why and change things up. A- a- absolutely. And uh, and from there I, I basically swung to the exact opposite side of uh, the investing spectrum and I uh, I discovered what dividends were. And I only focused on buying dividend stocks. But of of course, rather than buy companies like Coca-Cola or Procter & Gamble, I just went straight to Yahoo, fired up the screener, and just sorted by dividend yield. And just bought the highest dividend yielding stocks that I could find, because I figured that was the best way to, to make money. So I'm thinking this is a continuation of this story. So we'll we'll stick with this one. I'm thinking that you had some good thoughts there, right? You started to realize that companies that pay dividends, well, they're having to pay real cash to people, and one hopes that it comes from cash flow. Sometimes companies can 
find other ways like borrowing money to pay their dividends, but at least they're paying you back real cash, which is more than penny stocks do. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, it didn't even occur to me that a company with a high dividend yield might not pay it or would have the payout reduced. That thought didn't even cross my mind. I just thought if it said the dividend yield was 21%, that that's when you bought it, that's what you got. So, again, a wonderful learning lesson. That, that really is. And sometimes we bounce from one bad experience to try to do something completely different, and it doesn't always work out for us, but I know this is all part of a progression. The reason that you're on the podcast this week is because you've gotten to a much better place, and maybe we'll cover that in a future story. But, Brian, thank you very much for sharing um, what I think many of us can relate to, which is a story how we start off, and often we're looking for excitement, we're looking for a low-price stock. Uh, we have some bad experiences. We bounce to another approach, in this case, high dividend yields. We don't have time to really fully explain dividend yields. I know a lot of our listeners already understand that. But uh, that is a very relatable story and one that I'm very happy to have featured here on Rule Breaker Investing. Yeah, well, I, I really hope that people that are new to investing can learn what, see, see what I did and, and hopefully can, can learn the lessons uh, through me so they avoid that themselves. Thank you, Brian. And as an addendum to your story, I know before you came to work for The Motley Fool, you worked in which industry? Uh, the medical device industry for about a decade. Indeed. So, somebody who is starting out speculating with maybe some questionable firms operating within the medical field, but then you found a very fine one and uh, devoted a good portion of your career to that. So, that's kind of a nice ending as well. Yeah, absolutely. I got lucky there. Yep. Thanks to Audible for supporting our podcast. For our audience, Audible is offering a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial. If you want to listen to it, Audible has it. Just go to audible.com fool or text fool to 500-500 and browse their unmatched selection of audio content. Download a title free and start listening. For me, I'm just noticing that a, a novel I've enjoyed a lot. I'm about halfway through it. It's called A Gentleman in Moscow. You may have already read it yourself. If you hadn't, I would recommend Amartolz's book. It's an outstanding, old-world-feeling novel written by an American, but feeling like it was written by one of the great Russian novelists. Anyway, A Gentleman in Moscow, I see, is right there on Audible. I know you would enjoy Audible's reading of A Gentleman in Moscow, maybe as you're driving or jogging. So, Audible members get a credit every month, good for any audiobook, regardless of price, and unused credits roll over to the next month. So, if you didn't like my audiobook suggestion, you can exchange it, no questions asked. Anyway, get a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial at audible.com slash fool, or as I mentioned, text fool to 500500. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash F-O-O-L, or text fool to 500500. All right, do you hear that crackling fire? That's right, must be time for campfire story number three. No member of the Motley Fool community has added more value back to other members of our Fool community, most of all through our online discussion boards for years and years now, than Tom Engel. We have a lot of greats, and there may be some people who rank near Tom, but quite simply, no one has posted more good and helpful thoughts for his fellow Fools for more than a decade at Fool.com and our board servicing services like Motley Fool Stock Advisor and many others than my next guest joining us around the campfire. Tom Engel, welcome. Oh, thanks. And I'm glad to be uh, talking to you again. I'm so delighted to have you on this show. And 
Tom, where are you calling in from? Uh, Crestwood, Kentucky. Excellent. And how many years have you been a foolish capital F investor? Wow. It was when you all were with AOL and you were doing the uh, um, instant message or the uh, chat, online chat. Yeah, back in the day. Back with AOL Instant Messenger and chat I don't really remember when that was. That might have been 1996 or seven. Wonderful. Now you, you're you're in some ways you're, you're relating that to when the Motley Fool started. But I know that I'm talking to somebody who's been investing well before the Motley Fool started. Tom, when did you buy your first stock? Ballpark. Well, I was 12 years old. It was in 1967. All right. So this is somebody who's now in his 50th year, just completed since it's now 2018. 50 years of investing. And last thing before we get to your story, Tom, your affiliation with The Motley Fool. What do you do around Fooldom these days? Well, I'm an analyst for um, Phoenix One and also for Odyssey Two. Um, I, I like to work on the boards. That's kind of, I, I enjoy that work. I like talking to people on the board, getting information from them, sharing information with them. Uh, a lot of the stuff, um, a lot of the best opportunities I've actually benefited was from community members alerts. You bet. I know exactly what you mean. And those two missions that you were referencing are part of our Motley Fool Supernova service. For those who are not yet Supernova members, we hope everybody will in time be a Motley Fool Supernova member. But Tom, certainly anybody who uses Motley Fool Stock Advisor will come across your famous page posts where you go back over a company each quarter, you update the story, and you've done that for years. So they're these amazing posts with lots of wisdom and insight. So maybe we're going to see some of that wisdom and insight in the story you're about to tell. Tom Engel, what is the title of this story? The Power of the Community. The Power of the Community. Once upon a time, and you carry it on from there. Well, I've always liked uh, investing in recessions. I always think that's the best time to buy stocks, but we don't get them that often. But in November of 2008, I received a phone call from another, uh, his name was David, too. Um, he taught me options, how to use options in the 1990s. And he, he called me pretty regularly with, with uh, stocks he thought were good ones and wanted to go over them with me. But this time he called with a stock that was selling for $1.50 under cash value. It was in November 2008. And, of course, I've had people send me those type of stocks on a pretty regular basis, but usually something was wrong with them. They would have debt. They would be so cash flow negative that the, the burn rate would probably eat up the cash too soon to benefit. So, Tom, what you're describing here is you're t- talking about a stock where, let's say the price per share, I'll make this up, is at $17 a share. And you're saying that literally the cash that that company had in its own bank account was worth $1.50 more than that. Yes, but the story's better because it was a $3.50 stock, and it had $5 in cash. All right. Keep going. So, it had zero debt. That's the first thing I checked, because a lot of them would send me these examples, but they would have more debt than cash, so that it made the cash useless. <laughs> so, that was done. Had zero debt. And I thought, well, maybe the cash burn was really high. But it actually, every year, it was cash flow positive. And I'll go ahead and tell you the name of the stock is Toll Grade. Now, there was another thing I looked for because sometimes these stocks would have their cash parked in, uh, into illiquid assets called auction-rated securities. I don't know if you know what that is, but they're very illiquid. Uh, at one time, they were very liquid, but 
because the Dutch auction failed on the maturity dates, they would, um, well, they tied up the money for decades. Some, right. I don't know if some of the companies ever got their money back. Some did. But toll grade didn't, toll grade didn't have any of those. Didn't have any auction rate of security. It was pure cash. It was when they when when, when he called me for this company. The the market was down really really bad. November, matter of fact, November twenty first, two thousand eight, wow. was the date that I believe was the true low of the market for for uh, any practical uh, low. Anyway, mm-hmm. it was lower in March two thousand nine. But a lot of the better companies were up by that time. So when he called me, this company was. I think the only way it could have went down this much was be if fear was just so high that it crushed this. You know, everybody said, you know, people were just selling it like crazy, and I don't even know why, mm-hmm. other than the fear around the, you know, surrounding the market crash. But what really was amazing about this wasn't that toll grade. I mean, I ended up buying toll grade because I knew that if it went up to five dollars, that was a forty-three percent gain right there. But that wasn't the the good part of the phone call, the good part was that we came to conclusion if toll grade was being sold so irrationally, maybe the whole market was irrational. So that's when I bought, took my cash cushion down to 1%. That's the lowest I'd ever been in cash for decades. And it was because of his phone call. And Tom, typically where do you keep your cash cushion? Usually it, it runs around 12%, and it's not it's not that I keep it there on purpose i don't use cash i don't let cash just set i'm always uh, lightning stocks i feel that the valuation is too high but i only lighten i never sell entire positions because i think you need to have 80 percent at least 80 percent of your uh portfolio compounding so around 12 percent i will use that cash to go into the market where i think there's real bargains at the same time, I lighten things. I've seen form a pattern of where the stock will sell off at high value points or okay. high P ratios or, mm-hmm. uh, or low cash flow yields. And then I put that back in cash and then go for the next bargain. So my cash is actually being put to work all the time. So it, it just don't sit there. So to me, that's, that's kind of the, the important part. The important part of the phone call probably was that it allowed me to get more cash into the market than I probably would have. And I got it in at what I think was one of the best times. Um, one of the stocks that I bought was Starbucks, and I have a post on the boards where it was my largest position um, in Starbucks at that time. Mm-hmm. That, that position, it was at $4 split adjusted. But I also was able to buy Amazon under 40 and uh, Cheesecake Factory around $6.50, or at least under $7. Mm. And Cold Creek at about $1.50, but that story didn't turn out too well. <laughs> they well, ended up going broke. Well, that can happen from time to time. But Tom, what happened? What ended up happening with Tollgrade, which I, I believe is a telecommunications equipment supplier? I think they're based in Virginia. Well, you know, actually, that was good. It, they did exactly what once once the market started to turn a little bit, they went to five dollars just like that. So that's a forty three percent return almost immediately. And then they got acquired. I think. At about eight to ten dollars, I forget. It's been a little bit <laughs> been too long for me to remember exactly. Sure, but it was about eight or ten dollars that they were acquired. So, Tollgrade was that was a, turned out to be a good investment for me, but it was definitely not the the main benefit of the phone call. 
and I get you. And so the power of community here was that someone. This is not me. I wish it were me, but a friend of yours named David, um, checking in with you. Is that somebody that you'd met online? Yes, I met. Uh, yeah, he's. Uh, he used to post online. His username was uh, Hot. I think ten fifty seven. Not real sure, but I think that's what it was. And uh, he taught me. Uh, he taught me how to use options in nineteen ninety, and that really paid off um, when the technic the technology companies were having these huge premiums. You know, I think it was like 10 or 12% for, you know, 45 days or something like that. Mm. It, was, it was amazing premiums. So he taught me that, and I used that when the premiums were high. Not so much now. I don't use them hardly any now. In fact, I think I found a better way. But to go back to the point, um, David uh, called me regularly on, on stocks that uh, he was interested in. I've been trying to get him back to the Motley Fool Board, and he wants to come back. But he got really involved in real estate, and that's his thing now. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to be able to draw him back, but he has been talking a lot about stocks. He said, I'm going to post on the boards again. I'm going to post on the boards again. Well, I hear you saying that it's the power of community, but underneath that, it was a recognition through the focus on one particular stock, which looked clearly undervalued, and obviously, as it turns out, it was, but you started to realize that the entire market might be irrationally priced, and so you lowered your cash cushion from 12 to an historic 1% for you. And wow, you you made out like a bandit here. Ten years later, now that we're in 2018, we can look backwards and see the brilliance of that move and the power of the community. Yeah, wouldn't have done it without him. I would not. I would have still been holding cash because uh, everybody was still very pessimistic. They were uh, still believing that the S P 500 was going to go down lower. And I remember it was a tough time. I mean, part of my job, as you know, every month is to pick a stock for Motley Fool Stock Advisor and two stocks for Motley Fool Rule Breakers. And I've done that every year uh, starting since 2002 and four. And uh, I, I had my head under my pillow in 2008 and nine. I didn't want to have to pick any stocks at all. I'm, I'm glad in retrospect that we did because, as you point out, we got some of our historic low cost bases. But at the time, it did not feel good at all, did it? No, it didn't. It, it was somewhat scary. I mean, I really I like it when it, when the stock market's going down. And when uh, I've had I always had this kind of a guideline that if you choose stocks that have done well before the market correction, and you buy them as they go down in a recession, then you when the market recovers, you're going to do well. I mean that's a hundred percent sure, almost without a doubt. But um, you got to be careful that you don't put your money in too early if it's one of these uh, big corrections. And I think that's why I always kind of spaced it out. But when he called, that was uh, that was like a clear signal that that was worth taking a little bit extra risk, put in more money than normal. All right, thank you, Tom. All right, next one up, we're going to go back to a voice we've already heard for Campfire Story Number Four. My friend Brian Feroldi. Brian, let me start by asking you, what is the title of this story? Uh, we'll go with "Leverage Cuts Both Ways." Leverage cuts both ways. So. Now that we're getting into leverage, this sounds like if if we normally operate at sort of an intermediate level for this podcast for anybody listening, like you know something about business, you know something about the stock market, but maybe you're not an expert. It sounds like this might be an advanced intermediate story. Is that fair? I'd say yes, it's fair. All right, good because leverage is is one of those concepts. So I'm looking forward to this one, Brian. Let's get started. Once upon a time, what? This was more recently, so uh, let's go with five years ago. So I was deep into foolish investing. Uh, I knew much, much more about the stock market. I understand financial statements. And I got excited about a company that uh, I believe you know well, which is called uh, Kinder Morgan, KMI. I do know Kinder Morgan. Yep, the very large 
oil pipeline company and one that has been a, a recommendation of mine and Motley Fool's Stock Advisor. I hate to say it, it's not been one of my best recommendations. Uh, I, I would say that's fair, yes. Uh, this, is a, <laughs> this is a company that's in the oil transportation business, and uh, one of the things that attracted me to their business was they operate the pipelines, and they have contracts with people to move uh, natural gas and oil back and forth. And it doesn't matter to them what the price of the oil is. The only thing that matters is the volume. So, in theory, their business was highly uh, insulated from fluctuations in energy prices. I agree. I thought I thought the same. And it was uh, run by a very shareholder-friendly guy named named Rich Kinder, and they had a wonderful growth story with the uh, the, the U.S. transitioning from coal over to natural gas. Kinder Morgan had a wonderful growth story in place. So this is one that I started to uh, buy aggressively in my personal portfolio. And um, when CEO Rich Kinder, I believe, said something along the lines of, we are projecting 10% dividend growth for the next five years or something. So management was on record as saying, our dividend is going to grow 10% annually. And um, Wall Street really, really ate it up. So my initial purchases were, were, were well in the green, and I was so excited about the story that I started to use options on top of my stock purchases. So I set up a couple of very bullish option positions to take advantage of the leverage from the rising share price. So if the share price went up, I would have, my options would have exponentially increased my return. Yeah, and we're talking about a company here just to uh, not to steal the, the the end of the story because this won't. But I just want to make sure for anybody who doesn't know Kinder Morgan, this is a company that today is worth about forty one billion dollars. So this is a this is a uh, mid to large cap company, and it's a real business. They do today pay a, a dividend that has a yield of about two point eight percent. So we're talking about one of these S and P five. This was a solid company that you were doing some additional speculation in, Brian. Uh, yeah, I, I thought it was truly, truly rock solid. And again, what I was, my, the confidence in the company came from one, the CEO who had generated great returns for shareholders, and two, the fact that their business was largely insulated from shifts in oil and energy prices. Um, so that confidence, uh, th- those facts gave me the confidence to add options to my to my stock position. And for anybody that followed. Kinder Morgan or the energy sector at all knows that the price of uh, oil and gas plummeted in uh, 2014-2015 time period, and Kinder Morgan stock fell very, very hard during that time. Yeah, I mean, this was something that nobody really expected. Um, we now look back and see how oil just got fleeced from uh, roughly February 2014 over the next year, it went from about $110 a barrel down to about $50 a barrel. And for a company that was paying increasing, one hoped, dividends off of expectations of stability in energy prices, this was a hard pill to swallow. Yes, it was. And so, my my stock position in Kinder Morgan went, went into the red when the stock price went down. But what really hurt me was that my options positions uh, were highly levered to um, Kinder Morgan stock. So my my loss that should have quote unquote only been fifty percent turned into a total loss of 90 percent or more when the stock fell. 
So that uh, that was a very painful experience for me, and that was the actual largest dollar amount loss that I've ever taken. But once again, uh, that was a very painful experience for me, but I came out the other side, I, I believe, truly a much better investor. And, and a key lesson for me with Kinder Morgan was that um, be wary of companies that do not have pricing power. Because I thought Kinder Morgan was uh, a, a different than most energy companies because of these contracts that I had in place. But it turned out that Kinder Morgan had no control over its pricing mm. because uh, its customers, Kinder Morgan's customers, were other oil companies. And when, those, when, when the price of energy fell, its customers uh, went, went, got into financial trouble, which in turn put Kinder Morgan into financial trouble. Mm. So that was, a, that was a, a very painful lesson for me to learn. Well, Brian, you've done two great things on this show because you've come on and shared something really painful. And that's hard to do. It takes a big man and a big capital F fool to come on and talk about his single worst investment. Um, but you've also drawn a really intelligent lesson to help a lot of our listeners think about, think smarter about investing. So this is a strong S and P 500 company. This is a founder-led company, one with a, a quite a storied history. Actually, it's been, if you look at it from a long-term standpoint, it's been a pretty good investment. But during this period of time for it, and during that that period for you as an investor, it ended up putting a big number in the loss column for you. But you've done a great job. Um, Paying, paying that forward to all of our listeners as we think, in particular, yeah, great lesson about pricing power and who really controls a company's destiny. Uh, some companies control it better than others, don't they? Absolutely, they do. And, and that's one of my big criteria that I use when I'm evaluating new potential investments is uh, are they in charge of their, uh, do, do they have control over their future or are they dependent on outside factors for their success? Excellent. Brian Froldy, thank you for that wonderful story. Glad to share it. All right, the fire might slowly be dying, but it's not dead yet. Time for campfire story number five. Tom Engel, the title of this story? Well, community Power of the Community Part Two. Excellent. Go right ahead, sir. Once upon a time, what? Well now, his name is Don. His username is D Brown Seven. Yes, this is an active Motley Fool community member. I certainly recognize Don's screen name, as anybody who uses Motley Fool Stock Advisor and our discussion boards will know him. And tell us the story. He emailed me and said, you know, Priceline has done really well. And uh, it was. It was up 500% from the time Stock Advisor recommended it in 2004. And he said, no one covers it, and it's doing great. And I said, well, you know, I've never, I mean, I'm, here I am <laughs> strolling for Stock Advisor, and really is one that I missed. I said, you know, I don't know anything about it. I haven't seen it. So I looked at it. I read about it. Man, it was immediately I said, oh, this is really good. It's not only it's went up this high, but the P ratio was still very moderate. And I thought, oh, this is really good. I said, I'll start doing page posts on them. So I told Don that I'd write one as soon as I could. And my first one was um, August 25th, 2009. Okay. And at the time, the price was 150 47 and it was up 500% from when Stock Advisor first recommended it. So I kept, you know, writing about it. And in 2000, oh, I think it was 2010, I broke down and bought it. And it was at $240 per share. Higher from my first page post, 943% higher than when it was first recommended by Stock Advisor. And today, it's 
1700 and something. <laughs> yeah, and something is a good way of putting it. And part of the story then, obviously, is that it's very hard, isn't it, to actually see a stock go up five or six times the value and think, okay, all right, now I'm going to buy that. That's that's true. You know, I hear a lot of people say about, you know, anchor, do not anchor on price. And kind of the way I get around that is I look at P ratios or cash flow yields, and I tend to buy when they're reasonable or moderate, and sometimes when they're high. But if I really like the business, when they're high. But when I bought them at uh, 240, they were still reasonable. The P ratio was reasonable. Um, it was up 943% since Stock Advisor recommended it, but it's up 7,400% now. So from 240, 1737, even though I bought it late compared to when it was recommended, or even when you know Don told me about it, mm-hmm. I had a really wonderful investment from it. So again, I have to thank Don. I do this regularly. I thank him all the time over that. But uh, it's just it's amazing that this is not <laughs> this is number this is my second story on this, but it's nowhere near the only ones. I mean, it just there's been countless number of times when people have emailed me, and we can't talk about stocks on the uh, by email, SEC rules. So I always write them, said, I'll, I'll, I'll write on the boards. I put my reply on the boards, and then we just start discussing it. So I've just had so many good um, communications with people that post on the boards, and they've given me some really great alerts. And You bet. And Tom, looking back now over your career, which uh, is got to be in a golden age right now because the stock market's been strong. You've been invested for decades. What have been your top three best performing stocks over the long term? Well, I'd say Walmart probably was one of my better. Uh, I picked them really early. I, I chose them early because um, they had grown in about a third of the United States. They they didn't look like they were. That safe. I mean, they had we had Sears and Kmart way above them, and a lot of people didn't like Walmart at the time. Yep. They figured that well, you know, they'll go so far, and then eventually they'll run up against uh, Sears and Kmart, and that'll be the end of it. But you know, if they made it successfully in a third of the United States, I figure, well, why not the second two thirds? I mean, <laughs> what what could be different? I mean, surely they could continue to execute what so far have been a wonderful business model. And that's basically what they did. And if there was one mistake I made with Walmart, that when everything slowed up and they had matured and Sam Walton had died, um, and even after that I held it, but then I sold it. And and even though it hasn't done a lot, it's done. If I'd had the compounding on the money that it had made me, yeah. Oh man, you don't have to grow twenty percent. If you're compounding on a, you know, a significant amount of money, that's where the power of compounding actually comes in. But you know, I, I sold it. Um, I went into other things, and a lot of stocks I have, I think I'm real proud of. Um, I really like owning Amazon and uh, Starbucks, and I guess I wanted to to update my portfolio a little bit because I had a lot of stocks that were uh, like Walmart or Home Depot and and Pepsi and and different companies like that was that were growing but they weren't like putting out the returns they used to and shifting them into more modern stocks might have been an okay ideal but i probably and i haven't really just i'm not sure i've never calculated it but sometimes i think it would have been better if i never sold anything 
All right. Well, thank you very much, Tom Engel. And on a side note, I got a nice note from my friend Lee Pace, who lives in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. He dropped me a note just this week, and he he was referencing a tweet that I sent out in November of 2016, shortly after the presidential election. There were some people who were quite worried at the time. And this is not a political point, uh, trying to score points with anybody. This is more a point about life. What I did is I quoted from a discussion board posting by Tom Engel, who, whom you've just heard from and met. And I'm going to read what Tom wrote that day, uh, because my friend Lee Pace said, I still hold on to that a year later after that tweet. And here's what Tom Engel wrote. He said, I have one big rule. I never worry about anything. There's no point to it. Some things are just not in our control. I always felt it is within all of us to win, regardless of the circumstances. A man can win even with terminal cancer if he doesn't succumb to fear and pain and dies with dignity. Not always easy, but for those not facing death, to worry is just energy wasting. I've lived through many different presidents, you said, Tom Engel. None of them changed my life for the better or worse. I just stepped outside admiring the fall colors, fresh air, cool temperatures. Neither Clinton or Trump could ever change this day for me for either the better or the worse. It is not in their power. So if a change in president saps my strength, well, the weakness is mine. So far, no president has had that type of power over me, and I hope they never will. But if they ever do, it's my weakness. I strive to make the world a better place every day of my life, and that is all any of us can do. Tom, do you still feel just as strongly about those words today? Oh, yes, I do. Yes, I definitely do. Well, you can see they made an impression on me. I saved them. I shared them out, and here they come back to us a year later from one of our fellow fools listening in, who's, I'm sure, delighted to hear your voice for the first time. Tom Engel, thank you very much. Thank you, David. Well, there you have it. Campfire stories from our members, from our community. I hope you walk away with some more wisdom about getting started investing, or about not speculating too much when investing, or getting ready to make a change here in your financial life in 2018. That's why we gather around the campfire from time to time and share stories from real people doing real things financial in the world out there. A little less Dave this week, and a little bit more of you, which I always enjoy. And speaking of enjoyment, I'm going to say ahead of time, I am not going to enjoy next week's podcast. I hope you do, but I'm not going to enjoy it, because once a year, this same week, each year, this will be podcast number 133. If you subtract 52 from 133, you'll reach podcast number 81, done 52 weeks ago, this time last year, David's Biggest Losers. That's right, I'm going to look at my worst three selections in Rule Breakers and in Stock Advisor over the past three years, and let's learn a few lessons together about how badly I've done with those stocks and Maybe how we can do better going forward, avoiding those kinds of pitfalls. So, yes, my annual coverage of David's Biggest Losers coming next week. In the meantime, have a great start to your year. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.